Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On today's episode, I get to share a wonderful conversation that I recently had with musician, living legend, and one of the very finest people you might ever be lucky enough to meet, John Carroll. Let's get into it. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome back. As always, it's really wonderful to have you back at the pod. Uh, we had another good week over at the Substack last Monday. Hopefully you've already heard it, but if not, uh, you have a lovely conversation to catch up on. Uh, last week's episode, I talked to Barry and Abigail Hummel of the podcast Pops on Hops. It's just a beautiful conversation with a dad and his daughter who love music and beer. And how does that not seem like the coolest relationship ever? So go check that out. And then last Wednesday, I published a very, very personally, I mean, they're all personal. That's what this whole thing is. But the thing on Wednesday felt extra, extra special because it really wasn't about me. It was about somebody else. I, I published a an article that I wrote and dedicated to Grace Baldwin, who is the oldest daughter of my dear, dear friend, David. And it's a story about making a song with David and his daughters and the power of healing through music and me being a middle-aged dude sort of feeling really awful for this young woman who's experiencing this really tough thing for the first time in her life. And it's a thing that I've gone through and it's really, I think it's a really beautiful story and it was so moving for me to get to do this with David and his family. I mean, they are my family in so many ways. Um, so to be able to, to, to have this project, as a way to, to reach out and do that kind of a thing with people in my life and try to actually affect some real change in people's lives is so meaningful to me. So I want to thank Dave and his girls for letting me be a part of that with them. And thank you to all of you for all the nice things you've had to say and all the wonderful support. If you haven't read that story, you can always find it over at the Substack. It's whatamimaking.substack.com. That's a big part of what I do here. Um, I hope you're enjoying all the stuff. Uh, you guys have been really good about reaching out this week. I'd love to hear more. I'd love, I always want to know what you think. We've got lots of stuff in the works. Um, while I'm really excited about your support and engagement, um, there's lots of new stuff coming. I have a couple of video ideas that I'm still trying to implement. And um, I've got some additional pod content ideas we're working on over at, uh, at, uh, at the old laboratory there. And we're going to have some new stuff that we're going to try to like throw out as little bonus stuff in the feed and try a few different things and just hang with us. We're going to have some fun. I'll keep doing the regular pods every Monday and we're going to try to throw out some bonus content every once in a great while. Um, if there's any stuff you feel like you're seeing that is particularly exciting or interesting to you and you like that Avenue, reach out and let me know. It gives me an idea of where to maybe focus some of my time and efforts. Um, I wanted to, to recap and just kind of mention again, I will be headed out on a two week house show 
House concert tour this summer in early July across the eastern half of the U.S. I do still have some some spots where I'm looking for hosts. I am amazed at how quickly we've been able to fill a bunch of these dates, but I do have some more that are still open. So if you're going to be around in the first couple of weeks and you live anywhere near Atlanta, Athens, Georgia, Nashville, Louisville, or Indiana, go on over to phonoforrecords.com slash house hyphen shows and uh, go see if maybe we can make something happen together. There's a playlist there where you can hear what my music sounds like if you're not familiar with it. I'll be going out solo. If you've never done a house show before, there's a bunch of details there. You can find out more. It's really pretty simple. It's not as complicated or expensive, as overwhelming as it might seem. Um, and we can make something happen together, and it can be completely unique and amazing, and it only takes a few people to do it. And I, I'm so excited about this, and I can't wait to tell and show you more. But if you're interested at all, reach out. Go over to the website for the, for the label. Again, it's phonoforrecords.com slash house shows. Um, I had a great weekend with my pals in the stick arounds. Those guys are my brothers, my family. Um, we went down to Maumee, Ohio, just outside of Toledo and played three sets of good old fashioned, uh, original rock and roll. And, um, there is very little in the world that makes me happier than spending time with those people and, and being a part of that. It is the center of my musical universe. And I love it so very, very, very much. Um, we do have some dates coming up for the stick arounds in May and June in, uh, uh, Grand Rapids and Chicago. So make sure you're going over to phone04records.com uh, and checking out the tour section. Um, if you're in the Midwest, the stick rounds do have some more dates over the summer and we adding, we are adding some more soon. So just kind of stay tuned. And uh, if you're into that, let me know. And if, if you're interested in putting something together that's a house show or a different kind of show, even if it's just a traditional venue and you'd like us to come to your town, reach out. We always want to hear from people. We're always looking for interesting ideas. Again, it doesn't have to be a big, fancy production. There are lots of different ways to do this. Reach out. The best thing about this is making connections and, and building community. And uh, we can do that whether we play a 3,000-seat theater, which we never get to do, or if we play a 30-seat living room. So uh, let's talk. Um, I want to talk a little bit of business here real quick. I know uh, I'm trying to get better at this. Um, and so... I kind of want to set a goal for April because I feel like we've been doing this for two months now. It's going really, really well. You guys have been absolutely amazing. I, I will say I'm very, very proud of the work that I'm doing. Um, many of you have reached out who are friends, especially, and and been a little concerned at maybe at the pace at which I've been putting stuff out. Um, hopefully you've noticed that kind of slow down to a more consistent and sustainable uh, stream. And from what I'm hearing from you, maybe it's a little more manageable on your end in terms of being able to sort of absorb all that content, too. Um, so I'm trying to find a, a, a middle ground that is enough to provide you value and enough for me to feel like I'm doing important, uh, consistent work where I'm, I'm kind of building something that's, that's you know, bigger than just any individual piece, I hope. But at the same time, it allows me to do other things in my life that bring me, you know, joy and peace and contentment and fulfill my life. And, and also just have some free time, something I, I, I've never been very good about actually having free time. And when I say that, what I mean is I've always filled the idle time that I have almost always with creative pursuits because that's the way people like me and my bandmates and so many of you get stuff done. We work our day job and then we turn around and we go and we bust our ass at night and on the weekend 
and really early in the morning or when we can get an hour in an afternoon. And so, you know, unless I go away on vacation, I don't rest. I'm trying to learn how to do that. So thank you for those of you who have reached out and shown a little concern. Um, Now let's get to these goals that I was talking about. So I appreciate everything everybody's done. It's been amazing. I I can't thank you enough. Um, So many of you have just, I mean, so many of you just immediately jumped in and said, what do you need? We'll give you whatever, whatever you need, whatever you want. I've had so many of you who, before I'd put out a second article, you know, we're already going, okay, here's, you know, I had a couple of you who were like, here's a, here's a yearly subscription. I believe in you get started. I, I had one person who was literally the first person who signed up and I will only not name him because I don't think he wants to be outed. And he gave me, a, he gave me a founding membership the day, like literally within 15 minutes of me announcing this thing. And I won't tell you who he is, but he's amazing. And as much as that $300 is very, very important to what I'm trying to do here, it, it also was an example of what, what I was capable of doing in the eyes of this person. And I don't expect you to give me $300. I'd be great, but I, I don't think everybody's going to do that. So here's what I'm trying to do. Because i got to build this thing slowly, but I do have to build it, and I do think I have to have some reasonable and achievable goals. So I'm going to go through these real quick so we can get to my conversation with John Carroll, which is why you're here. And honestly, it, it's worth suffering through this couple of minutes of promo so that you can get to it because it's really goddamn good. All right. So right now, and a lot of people, especially when they start, are going to be really afraid about sharing numbers. Now, when I started this, when I when I hit publish on February 3rd and I said, hey, Maddie C is going to do this, I had zero subscribers. I had zero free subscribers. I had zero paid subscribers. That was on February 3rd. This pod's going to publish on April 3rd, exactly two months, two months later. Right now, as of today, I have 349 free subscribers. And 20 of you are paying for your subscription. Now, I look at that and I see two very, very different ways to perceive those numbers from my perspective. On the one hand, I'm utterly in awe of the fact that I was able to do that in 60 days. 349 of you signed up. That's incredible. Thank you. You're unbelievable. 20 of you gave me your money. Most of you before I did anything in terms of the work that would merit that investment. So I appreciate it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. But it's also important to know that those numbers aren't going to sustain this for anything that's that's going to be lasting. And that doesn't mean that it isn't worth doing or it isn't worth pursuing. But for me to do this at this level and to continue like this, I have to hit some benchmarks. And so I want to try something. I don't know if this is going to work because this is all stuff I'm making up as I go. But here's what we're going to try. I want to try to find a way with my help and yours, I want to find a way that by May 1st, we can be in a position where we take that number of free subscribers from 349 to 500. And we take that number of paid subscribers from 20 to 50. 
Will you help me do this? That's 30 paid subscribers and 151 free subscribers that we got to find in 30 days. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do to do that. First of all, if you're listening and you've been thinking, boy, I'd like, I'd really like to support Matt and I just, you know, I need to wait till I get paid or now's not the right time. That's totally understandable. I get it. Maybe you've been thinking, oh, I got to do that. And it isn't a matter of money. It's just a matter of getting to it. Will you take just a minute and, and just do it today? I sure would appreciate it. I hate, I hate to ask, but this is what it's going to take to make this thing build. And I truly believe, I honestly believe in the bottom of my heart that if I do this and I stick to this every day and you help me a little bit, we are going to build this into something that can be sustainable. I don't know what sustainable means. To me, what that means at the end of the day is that I can make enough money to invest time in this regularly. That's what I want. I want an opportunity. I don't want a handout. I want a chance. So if you enjoy what I've been doing here and you've appreciated the work I've been doing and you can spare 60 bucks a year or $6 a month, or if you're in a spot where you can provide a founding membership and really give me some amazing encouragement and support, that would be a remarkable gift. If you don't have any money and the only thing you can do is to tell your friends about this, that is an amazing gift too. Every time I post something that you find interesting, share it with people. And don't just throw it up on your wall if, if you care. One of the really effective ways is to just reach out to two or three really carefully selected and curated people and say, I think these kind of conversations and this sort of topic is up your alley. I think this might be stuff that would resonate with you. They can find out for free. Again, my goal here is not to create a paywall so that there's certain stuff that I do that sits behind a subscription. I want to make this available for everybody. But to do that, I got to have enough people who can help pay the bills, so to speak. So, founding member, yearly member, monthly member, free member, whatever you can do, please make sure you're subscribed. Please also make sure that you're subscribed, rating, and reviewing uh, this pod wherever you're getting your podcasts. And of course, make sure that you're sharing whatever you enjoy on social media in whatever way you can. But telling people and having individual one-to-one -one conversations is often the most effective way for you to get something out of sharing that information and for that person to find out about what we're enjoying so much about these conversations here. So thanks. I, again, the, the headline here is thank you. Um. There are a lot of days where uh, I am absolutely, okay, all of the days include some self-doubt. Many of them include more self-doubt than self-confidence. Um, and, and often that, that's a very upside-down uh, math problem. There's a lot more self-confidence, uh, or excuse me, there's a lot more self-doubt than there is self-confidence. So when I get your words of kindness and your free subscriptions, and I see you share a post, or I see you pay for a membership, that self-confidence blooms. That self-doubt starts to go away. And I'm not telling you you're responsible for building that or shaping it or changing it. But I am saying that if you like what I do here, that's an incredibly impactful way to let me know. Now let's get to the best part of this thing, my conversation with John Carroll. Now the first time I told my bandmates about my sort of blossoming online friendship with John Carroll, the other dude's in the stick around, seemed to think it was cool that I'd made pals with a, a veteran musician who'd spent his life working in the industry. 
But when I brought it up again a few days or a few weeks later and they realized who I was actually talking about, they were kind of shocked when they made the connection that I'd, I'd been talking to somebody that we all kind of now saw as famous or having, quote, made it. Because you see, I didn't tell him this right away, but John Carroll is most widely known for being a member of the Starland Vocal Band. Yeah, the, the Afternoon Delight Band. When that record went to number one, John Carroll was barely 19 years old. When I mentioned my newfound relationship with John, I, I didn't lead with the Starland Vocal Band in, info for one reason, because I didn't want to sound like a name dropper. And secondly, I had been interacting for weeks with John uh, at first on Hangouts on the podcast that we both love called Stand Up with Pete Dominic that I've talked about here before. And then eventually in Discord conversations in smaller groups, and then after that, text, and then later phone conversations. So I didn't want to sound like I'd been hanging out with a guy who'd had a number one hit. But the truth is that for a long time of that, I had no idea that there was any connection at all between Afternoon Delight and my new friend John. In fact, at the time, I knew very little about John in terms of his career and credentials. I just knew he was a really talented musician, and I knew he'd been working in the industry a really long time and had a successful career. Everything I was lucky enough to catch in conversation or texts with John was also far more interesting than anything that could have been covered by talking about a song that came out nearly 50 years ago. What I knew was that John was a wildly talented musician, singer, and arranger. But more importantly, he was a super fascinating dude who seemed too nice to be a real person. Last summer when my, my band was uh, traveling out to New England, we were struggling to find a date on a Sunday night to end our tour in early August. And in an effort to just kind of leave No Stone Unturned, I reached out to John and a few other people that I tangentially knew in the area. And I said, you know, hey, if you know anybody, if you have anything, this was this was 10 days before the, the event. At this point, we had basically assumed this is a dead night. We're just going to drive home. And that sucked, but it was OK. We, it had happened before. We we'd be all right. Within two hours, John got back to me and he said, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give your info to a dude named Glenn at the Marigold Theater in East Hampton, Massachusetts. And within an hour of that, Glenn got a hold of me. And within two hours of that, we had a gig on the books. And Glenn opened up his venue to a no name band from 500 miles away. I don't even know how far it is, but it's several states away. With no promo. No prospect of ticket sales, nothing other than, hey, let's open up the doors and have an experience together because it's better than saying no to this. That experience is a summation of the luck of knowing John Carroll, of getting to be in his orbit. In the intervening years since John Carroll had a number one hit, he's had a vibrant and successful solo career. He's released a bunch of his own albums and singles, and he even has an impressive catalog of scoring and soundtrack work that he's done. He's a producer, 
He has a studio in East Hampton where he lives. And uh, that's where I talked to John when we had this conversation. And um, like true pros, we just we just jumped right into it. We just immediately went. And when I say pros, I mean professional gabbers. John's sort of main gig for the last 30 years or so has been um, as a member of uh, the, the touring outfit for Mary Chapin Carpenter. And, and he's done a bunch of production work on her records, I think, too. But, but John, John will be back out on the road with her for another five or six weeks this summer. So if you're going to be out there and you're a fan or after you fall in love with John and you just want to go see him after we have this conversation, uh, you can go to MaryChapinandCarpenter.com and check out those dates. You can also go to JohnCarroll.com and see all of John Carroll's stuff. Without intending to begin in any specific spot, John and I just jumped right in and immediately he just started talking about the idea of how live streams, though incredibly necessary and a sort of best case solution in an awful scenario, were really a poor substitute for live music. And that really led to a conversation about poor substitutes sort of across the board in art. We agreed that it was a, it was a wonderful temporary fix for a confusing time, but now that they're not necessary for our safety, they really should only be used as a way to sort of supplement live performance in providing an opportunity to see artists who can't get to certain parts of the world that you'll never have a chance to see live. But it shouldn't be a replacement for a band that can tour and maybe come to your town or your state or your region. But then, of course, that springboard sent us into a pool of discussion that centered on the cheapening of art, an issue that I've been talking about here since I started this thing. And the lesson from this bit is just amazing and superb. I might have to design something and like put it in a frame and put it on my wall so that I remember it and see it every day. And of course, I will give John Carroll credit because it's brilliant and it's his. And the line that stuck with me was something like this. Have the proper perspective for your worth and give worth to your proper perspective. That's pretty deep shit, huh? I also think you should listen closely for a story that John tells that's really beautiful about a Van Morrison song he barely heard in a grocery store and how his musical antenna were so much smarter than his conscious self that he was able to connect with something that he was dealing with on a level that he couldn't understand. And, and that song found a way, even though he didn't know what it was and couldn't hear it in a sort of conscious level, it tunneled into his brain and told him something at a moment that he needed it most. And John's open to that kind of thing. And I've talked before about being more like that, about living that way more. I consider myself a conversational heavyweight. Now, I don't mean that I'm an intellectual or a great thinker or an orator or even good at debate. But I have a ton of interest. I ask a lot of good questions. I'm super curious, and I can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. It's a lot of what makes me really good at my work here. But sometimes it can overwhelm a conversation. 
and it can make an intro run on as I look at this and see that we're nearly 23 minutes in. Jesus Christ. John Carroll's a dude who can keep up with a talker like me. And I kind of thought when we got together, oh man, this is going to be hard to corral, but Jesus, he's a ninja. He's unbelievable. He's a conversational master. The man is, he's unbelievable. He can play piano like a sum of bitch, sure. But pay attention here and you're going to listen to him weave in and out of topics. And then return to stick the landing like some sort of weirdo linguistic love child of Mark Twain and Mary Lou Retton. And it's also just a treat to listen to him talk. John's natural ability for storytelling is fascinating life. And more than four decades on the road in rock and roll could make for hours and hours of amazing and wonderful stories. Here's roughly one of those hours that I got to spend recently with my friend and hopefully yours now. Legend, musician, and tremendous human being, John Carroll. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get going and it'll, it'll be what it'll be, but, uh, I'll just record now in case we miss something. Hey, you're Absolutely. in your, you're in your studio as well. I am. I am. Your Tell me about looks much like, uh, my, my last studio. Oh yeah. Where was your last place? It was in, uh, Haydenville, which is, uh, north of here. Okay. And, and then I had a, the first space I had here in Eastworks was, Kind of in between that size and and this size. Okay, how big is the space you're in right now? Uh, so big that I I need to do more things in it <laughs> to pay for it. <laughs> to pay for it. I need to do more, th- and and also, well, I'm trying to presently um, work my way to a scenario where I have to do less things away from it in order to to pay for it yeah so what does that look like the scenario yeah what is the scenario where you so basically you would stop having to play live and you would do more production work well i do a lot of production work um here and elsewhere i i I love doing it elsewhere uh because excuse me elsewhere's uh, tend to have engineers and (laughs) they do they do, and elsewhere means other people are paying for those engineers typically. Yeah, and and they're paying me as well. And um, so uh, the the live thing that's interesting because um, that's the the key to trying to to find a good balance of everything is to keep the performance thing, which I need to do. It's it's a lifeblood thing for me that oh, sometimes sure. I can forget. Um, uh, you know, in between uh, COVID really showed that. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that need by doing web stream performances and stuff. I just, no, I, I agree with you completely. Like there was some creativity to it that was really fascinating and it was really fun to kind of dive into, but it wasn't the same. It's not the same juice and it's not, it's not, not it's not the same connection. Um, and I found that to be true on both sides of the 
the window, right? Both as a performer and exactly. audience member. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted it and needed it as both. And yet it was great to have something, but it didn't take very long to realize it was sort of a poor substitute. Did you find, uh, maybe you were already doing this before the uh, lockdown, which wasn't a lockdown. <laughs> right. It was, involuntary, it was a yeah, voluntary yeah. lockdown, right? But we all the, stayed um, home to take care of each other because we're not assholes. Yeah. And, and while we were home, uh, some of us discovered some of the things that other folks had been doing for a long time, which was live in concert, good in concert videos from other folks. Uh, and the, the thing that, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, there's a, like a cheapening, you know, the, the, the cheapening of art, the cheapening of, of everything that you can put. We were, we were talking about this the other night on the zoom hang, right? On yeah, zoom yeah we absolutely were. And some folks are, uh, have very raw nerves about it when it, it really comes down to literally a, a product that they grow themselves and they yes. want to sell it. And, and all of a sudden they, they are on the, the abject end of the corporate. Uh, no, we're, we do this. You don't do this. We do this and you do it on our terms type of thing. And there's all sorts of, you know, it, at odds with one another aspects of that new paradigm, uh, what you're doing uh, and, and what, what, what Pete is doing, what I think uh, many people are doing, which is uh, not cheapening themselves by giving stuff away. The che- one of the, one of the thing, but making it available to those who can't afford it. Correct. And, and I think that's the, like, and I don't want to cut you off, but like you, no, please you kind of dipped into a, if a anybody's worthy of being, is... if anyone's worthy of being cut off, it's me. Go, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get to a good old fashioned Midwestern polite off pretty soon here, Mr. Carroll. Don't worry. Where uh, we'll both, we'll just spend the next 20 minutes deferring to each other. It'll make for fascinating radio. Um, <laughs> but like this idea of, of sort of cheapening ourselves, you know, I see it in non-artistic industries as well. My sister yeah. uh, teaches public school and has for more than a decade. She started in New Mexico. She grew up here in Michigan. And in Michigan, we have historically paid in the top, you know, five or ten percent nationally among states uh, in terms of we the way we compensate teachers. And my sister basically saw that it wasn't that it was a shame that New Mexican teachers didn't make that kind of money. It was that, oh, Michigan teachers should just be super lucky. And it is mm-hmm. that it is that change of perspective that I think right. it required in saying, no, you can be valuable and still say, I'm worth this. Just because that's a what, what has been shown to you as a best case scenario doesn't mean it isn't something that you have a right to if that's what the work is worth. And I think that's really the discussion that we're starting to have, whether that's about our friend Aaron, who's a farmer out in the Pacific Northwest, or Spotify giving you a fraction of a penny. I mean, it's basically just yeah. we want convenience and access and ease, but we don't really want to have to make any sort of sacrifice for that at all. Yeah, it's a cultural it's a cultural aspect, I think, of what is doing good business, what uh, the, the same uh 
the same disparities that we that Americans experience when they go overseas and they realize everybody is on the take, so to speak, in certain in certain countries on the take. And this is how we do it. This is a culture that haggles. Hey, you must right. be you, you. What what planet are you from? You don't haggle. I just told you that this turnip is, you know, 80 this and you you didn't come back with 60 and wait a minute, I don't know how to do business like that. Right. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, that's it's fun to watch even the people in Marrakesh, for example, who who are, are used to having American and European. Oh, he's going to play something. There we go. That song, I had that song in my head before we even went. And then once I stood in that square, John Carroll, all I could think of was, this is this is where Indy loses Marion in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And like the 12-year-old Maddie just went, oh. Oh, good. You but didn't like those 12-year-old Maddie. But like there's uh, these uh, a little too much sometimes, and that sounds dirty, but it's not. Um, but like that, even those people who are used to sort of haggling and also understand that like Americans are not used to that concept. Really. It's, this is the sticker price and this is what it is. They, they will just sort of double down on that, that cultural thing of like, no, 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 you have to do this. If we don't do this is it's, this is half the fun. Like this is part of, this is part of the transaction. I get to do this with you and you pay me. And and we, we exactly. And when we, we uh, tend to subvert that dynamic, within this uh whatever the it's probably uh akin to, into the early puritanical shame and guilt that catholics and other folks need to to feel about wanting something oh sure yeah but yeah, yeah. The, the uh but to, to bring it full circle one of the first aspects of this kind of cheapening and, and this by taking it out of the the mercantile realm and putting it back into to artistic realm do i sound okay in this we didn't oh, you do sound great you sound uh silky uh, smooth oh thank you <clears throat> it's <laughs> yeah. the nightbird show <laughs> it's the daybird show uh it's the uh, uh what is what, what uh, i don't know what bird of prey is out at noon i don't i don't know it's like the uh the peregrine idiot or something i'm not sure but uh <laughs> okay so I, i'm watching Okay, so the stones go out on the road. Yeah, and um, uh, Charlie Watts, uh, Charlie Watts's drum tech is actually I've played with him, and he lives up a lot of the Stones uh, music techs, instrument techs, and they're all musicians, and they're great, and uh, they all live in this general. Not all of them, but a few, a couple of them, and um, Don McCauley. Uh, he, uh, I'd run into him at flea markets and stuff. And he'd say, man, I found this great drum. Charlie's going to love this one, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, right before that tour happened, he was, he was going out to start rehearsing for the tour. And, um, and Charlie, uh, took a turn for, for his last legs and, um, unfortunate and he um they went out on the tour and they got i think with steve jordan and one of the things that i still kind of get astounded i I get excited about it because i'll see a youtube 
you know, Stones show, uh, Rio de Janeiro, 2018 you know, or whatever. I get yeah. excited, you know, and I would have loved to have believed and discovered that the Stones somehow circumvented the handheld audience member video thing that's posted because it never sounds good. Um, <laughs> people convince themselves, I think, that it does or that it convinced themselves, well, that's what it sounded like when you were there in the audience because this person was in the audience. No, it sounds like shit. It sounds, it sounds like, like shit. shit because uh, it has nothing to do only in a, you know, it sounds as good as someone holding up the phone to someone saying, listen to what they're playing in the next yeah, room, you know? Exactly. Um, so, and it completely, I mean, to, to sort of like dive into your idea of the cheapening, like it also in a way pretends to be a substitute for being in the room. Even yeah. if it's incredibly well filmed, you're never yeah. going to capture that. Yeah. I, you know, the, these doors have been opened to, for people to, get wide eyed and eager to learn about virtual things. And it's odd, you know, oh, mix your record in this control room. You know, that virtual thing. Oh yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can, um, oh, this I is can, the, this is I the control can... room of electric Ladyland, And, um, yep. Uh, it's like, wait a minute. So I'm just, I'm actually being, you're attempting to convince me to leave my control room. <clears throat> Just that that is actually here, <laughs> tangibly, sonically, otically here, and go to another place because I think that the the place that's not here is better than this place, and I can go there by some kind of magic, and you know it's all representative. Of course, and it's it's aspirational. And you're already representative. You're already in a representative situation, right? You're already sure. in a in an artifact. Uh, realm of pursuit of presenting something that you are working on. Uh, I don't know what the most, uh, you know, live performance back to that, that point, you know, that that's probably the closest thing to an utterly real now saliently in your face now and not later. And it's one of the, at least for me, it's one Experience. of the few things left in life that still feels like it has a little bit of magic in it. Oh yeah, you know the mystical the 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 mystical buttons that are pushed that we'll never be able to decipher or analyze. Um I was thinking about this this morning. I don't know why. I don't know what led me to well you're I think you and I are similar and that we have healthy free floating associations. <laughs> I think the I I think we have active imaginations that have uh, various well, yeah. paths and avenues uh, down which we yeah, may not have path. traveled before. Right, and that path. Do you do the the forensic back step down the path of like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, what? Why did I just oh, think I of do. that? Oh, because I was I thinking do. of that. Because oh, because that's and I was thinking of that. Okay, well, I could probably do that now. But the important thing was, I was thinking about um, mystical subtext. Um, the subtext that's within some within a piece of art within within anything that you're experiencing that has perhaps had that consideration given to it by the artist that that created it and you know there's something going on there you don't know what it is 
Do and you, you and you <laughs> cannot explain it to yourself, let alone to other people. Exactly. And and we're, we're we we want to know what it is. But don't instead you think of, but instead don't of you just think... let it just let it be? And uh, you know, the, I was I was thinking of this this time. This is a, there's there was two situations that I thought of, and I was standing in line at a grocery store, and the speakers in a grocery store are pretty far up there, you know. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other ambient. Uh, cantankerosity going on and and you uh and i'm standing in, in line and there's a song playing of course they don't play like music stuff and you know great fortunately but but the um anymore they play pop you know pop is everywhere media is everywhere and hits you in the face yeah you can't usually, get away from it usually i resent that the place i resent it most of the damn gas station man you know it's like man oh at the pump the pump it's like oh really? my god I'm I'm buying I'm buying the product and you're selling me something else like you know I'm like Switters in the Tom Robbins book Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates I hate being sold something but so I'm standing in line though and I hear this song it's this music I can tell it's Van Morrison that's all I can glean and discern is it's Van Morrison I think and I'm being moved by this I, I can't hear a word he's saying. I can barely hear what the music is doing. And I'm being moved by it. And I thought, that's magical. Why in the world is that touching me in this way? And I pulled out the Soundhound or Frazzle Dazzle, whatever the the app is in your phone that I call it turns your phone into a remote control to make the record. Oh, yeah, Shazam? Shazam the one you're talking about? Shazam and I use Soundhound. Frazzle Dazzle sounds like a better branding opportunity for them, though. So I, I like use that. The Soundhound, and uh, in, in very, you know, eight times out of ten, by the time you think you want to do that and you open it up and do it, the the record ends. Oh know? yeah, the song has changed. And uh, but this time I was lucky, and um, it popped up just in the nick of time. Van Morrison's Memory Lane, and I forgot about it. You know, I didn't rush home or anything, but a couple of weeks later, um, I came across it because it, it gets saved. And I, I'm at the studio and I figure I'm going to find out what this what this was. And uh, at the time, we were neck deep in a lifestyle that very much daily and chronically included uh, seeing to my mother-in-law, who was... Uh, in her 90s, late 80s at the time, and um, had dementia. And uh, <laughs> I played this record, and my studio was in the house where my wife and I lived, and uh, and she must have heard me blubbering or something. <laughs> she just yeah. she came in because the song was <clears throat> the bullseye. If someone knew me and 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 knew of the record and i was talking about my mother-in-law and what was going on and she lived you know about three and a half miles away in a assisted living place they would have said oh dude one of the most beautiful 
songs about this is called Memory Lane <laughs> by Van Morrison, and you should really hear it. And I would have, and it probably would have had the same reaction. How I knew that from hearing it, you know, by where being, that where that radio wave connects with your brain and how it makes sense when you got what seemed in the moment to be such little information, and yet there was a part of you that was able to connect with it in a deeper way. And, and the question, and the question is why, right. and then the next question is, does it matter? It doesn't. It right. just what matters. What matters is that you're aware of it, you know. And folks, my, my brother and I had um, folks have a you know this need to analyze. And um, my brother and I had this great conversation the other day, and he's um, very much a spiritual seeker, and sort of uh, he's my brother is sort of my own. A personal uh, Peter Coyote. <laughs> oh wow! Um, but well, you know we're re recovering. I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I. How long have you been sober, John? Uh, since April eighth, nineteen ninety. You have an anniversary coming up. I guess I do. I guess yeah, I do. So but not the subject, but it's the same subject in terms of yeah. the the thing that we all struggle with. And in this spiritual road that um, tends to be a, a challenge to some because it flies in the face of a lot of perverse indoctrinations that we've had through organized religion. And, you know, for me, it was Catholicism. But even then, it's, you know, early on, I just, I figured when I was in Catholic school i figured oh, all these people are going to outgrow this shit <laughs> and and to, and to be to become an adult and see how many folks didn't and i don't mean this in any ridiculous way because people hold on to you know the the thing that makes them less frightened of dying frankly uh not only that but less afraid of living and it makes them afraid of living. And yeah, well, but it also, but also, what it does is it creates these sort of routines and comforts that feel yeah. like a salve, even though they're. I, right. I see them as a limitation. Yeah, or we people, might see them as as ritual. You know, uh, and again, and again, there are. It's really interesting to kind of to kind of dive off to the side on this. Um, I recently got back from that a trip with uh, my mom to Morocco for eleven days, and one of the things I really found that surprised me was. I loved the routine and the peace and the beauty of the prayer call five times a day. Right. Yeah, I, lo yeah. I loved that regardless of all the other dogma that goes with it. I loved that there were five times a day where there was an entire culture that just went, now is when we stop for a minute. And this is when we do another thing. Yeah. And we get reflective and you can deal with that religious baggage whatever way you want that simple act of stopping five times a day to focus on something meaningful yeah, is right is missing deeply in our society well it, it is and it isn't it's it's like you know sort of what we were already talking about is like are you aware of it or not you know what what sort of cultural requirements do you hang on on these things that either work for us or don't work for us community um being being in touch with one another, being empathetic to other perspectives, you know, valuing other perspectives. Um, but what, what my brother and I were talking about was this 
you know, I, I call it uh, picking up my mail. And I think other folks in, in friends, friends of Bill, so to speak, uh, will the picking up your mail. It's listening to your heart. Now that you have a sober head that you can trust, a sober brain that can be wired to your ass um, the right way, you can experience what in the here and now in a, in a live sense with music, with art, with human beings, with, with soul, it's, it's all soul. We call it soul. Uh, the thing that we've been taught to believe leaves our body and goes to, to the clouds to say how I do God somewhere, you know, it is the us that makes us us. And it is us. And, and when, you know, folks in sobriety and in recovery, uh, and many folks who aren't, and I, I don't judge in, in this, this sounds as though I'm being I think you're just talking about your path. I, I sure am just talking about me. And, and the, there was a really interesting thing that happened. Um, it was in 90, 91, and it was at Christmas time. And Christmas is, I've, I've had, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that's challenged by the Western capitalist Christmas because it just, it seems um, like something that's daring everybody to, to just go, what? You know, wait a minute, hold on. I actually, I, I have this idea I want to dress up. I was, I was in a show up here one time and it was, it was called Transperformance. They have it here every year in Northampton and uh, people sort of dress up different groups and artists, they dress up like artists. That is the theme of the year. And in this particular year, it was off the map. It was any place that was a, a town that's on a map. And I was sitting with the the organizer trying to figure out what song I would do. And I, I wanted to do I Got a Line on You because it was written by a guy named Randy California. And, you know, he was in spirit back in the 60s. And uh, the fellow uh, Steve Sanderson says to me, uh, yeah, but he, you know, was there anything, you know, remarkably costumish about what he was? I said, no, I don't even know what he looks like. I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know. It's spirit. There's just a rock band. He goes, yeah, if it was something that was kind of, you know, costumish that you could, you know, and I thought, gee, has anyone done Nazareth? Love hurts. And he goes, no. I said, I'll be Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> And, and it was great. And I actually, they, he made s sort of the mistake of making me a co-host because he thought I could work off of these other uh, hosts who are, you know, more, more comic, think on their feet, funny in front of everybody. I can be that, but I, I felt, I felt a little nervous having to do that and do the tune as well. But I do have, and I did at the time have really long hair and my beard was kind of longer and I put on this smock and sandals and a rope belt. And I still have that costume and maybe this Christmas I can do it, which is do it up and just go to the nearest, to the mall two days before Christmas <laughs> and just walk around and go, no, no. <laughs> no. Can't you just walking around and go, is this what I said I wanted for my birthday? No. <laughs> is this what I said? I, regis I registered for goodwill and peace on earth and you people are buying shit from sharper image. Yeah, you, you no, you're, it's all, it's all wrong. Anyway. So I have a problem at Christmas time. 
it's around 90, uh, 91, 90. And I was, I was newly sober and I went to the mall the day before Christmas or two days before Christmas, Pentagon city. Oh and yeah. Because I thought of somebody then and I wanted to get them something. So it was coming from a pure place and it was just, okay, this is okay. I'm going to do this. I go to the mall and I went to Johnny Rockets to have a cheeseburger before doing whatever it was I was going to do. And as I was sitting there at the counter and I was looking around at the mall and all these kids were there with their families. And I was, I was awash with this wonderful feeling of how beautiful, and it was a beautiful mall. It was just, it was a beautiful place. I was in this place that was just, it was awesome, right? The very thing that I was lumping into this resentable, begrudging thing happened to be at that moment for me, just a beautiful thing. There was a lot of joy everywhere. There was happiness. There was, everybody was having a good time. And just as this kind of, this washed over me, someone pushed the jukebox selection of uh, Chicago and uh, all the waiters and servers behind the counter pick up the ketchup bottles and they started singing Chicago, Chicago, <laughs> in town. And I was sitting there and thinking, this is, and I was by myself just experiencing this. And um, it hit me in a really sweet spot. I went to the payphone and I called my brother and I said, uh, Marty, the weirdest thing just happened. Um, Cause he has a trouble. He has a problem with Christmas as well. Uh, the Western capitalist Christmas. And he said, yeah, I said, you know, I explained everything that I just told you. And he said, oh, that's, that's beautiful, man. How, geez, it's been a while for how, how many, uh, how much sobriety? <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> so April to December that, that long. And, uh, and he said, yeah, he said, you just had a spiritual awakening. Expect many more. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I think it's it's funny because I'm not going through a, a sobriety thing in in the same way, like not in a I'm not dealing with a substance abuse thing, but I am kind of having a moment of clarity in a way. Like in the last yeah. few months, I have found myself opening up to things and being moved, not necessarily by ketchup bottles and Johnny Rockets, but by moments, right? Like like those things where you just go. Like I'm reading this book right now called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, and it's basically, you live to 80, you're going to get roughly 4,000 weeks on this planet. What are we going to do with it? And the essence of it is you can't do it all. You have right. to leave most of it behind. Right, right. And in doing that, you can literally look around pretty frequently and go, this whole thing is a miracle. Nobody knows how this is possible, and we all act like it's a pain in the ass. Right. What exactly. if we just what if we just stopped every day and went, holy shit, can you believe this? Sometimes that is the hey, that's that resonates with me, and I think it would resonate with most folks given the chance. And that's what these like the, the afternoon prayer, the noontime prayer. Yeah. That did you read uh, speaking of books, uh The Road. Oh yeah, uh, the Cormac Car McCarthy? Yeah, uh, you know, 
um, my friend uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter was. We were in a. We were about to fly to UK, and we were in the. Uh, I think it either at JFK or Heathrow would have been here. I guess doesn't matter. She came up to me and she was holding up the road, Carmen McCarthy, and I looked at it and she goes, "This is a must read." And uh, she had just read it, and I said, "Oh, cool." I said, "Give me a sketch," and she goes. It's a post-apocalyptic uh, landscape, and a man and a boy are trying to make it to the ocean. That's basically it. And I, it, the, the apocalyptic made me wait about two and a half or so years before reading the book. Yeah. Because I was up for that at that time. Sure. But when I read it, um, that was that was the takeaway that I, what you said, um, just the ritual, that is what the, the man brings to the boy is, boy, talk about it is what it is, right? Yes. It is we what it is. We cannot change this awful circumstance. This is All the we ultimate. can do is survive and find a way maybe to thrive if we get to the yeah, right you make, you make you make any sort of more extreme example of what you can do nothing but accept. And I don't want to like spoil the end of the book, although it's been out for a while and was turned into a major motion picture. The Which last, I, because I couldn't figure out how in the I, they could have I, I had it. no interest and it wasn't that I thought that they couldn't do it justice or that it wasn't, wouldn't be good. It was that I just, I knew it wasn't going to touch my experience with the book and I didn't want to, Sure. I, I felt like that was an unfair way to view it. So it was like, well, this can't live up to it. I'm not watching it. That's uh, how I feel about accidental tourists as well. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, but uh, so what I took away from that book was I, I read that book in basically a day and a half next to a lake in northern Michigan. I just sat on a beach. Beautiful. And sat by Lake Charlevoix for a day and a half and read this book and was absolutely transfixed. And um the last couple paragraphs, there is this explanation of the scales of a fish when this kid sees the fish and the water. And it is one of the most beautiful passages just of descriptive language about a thing I've ever read. And it is also the most unbelievable metaphor for mm -hmm. the beauty that they have found and the hope that it gives them. And that's all it needs to end the book. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like that it's, so wraps into what we've been talking about. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it that was um, quite James Agee ish that through the child's eyes, um, the, the metaphorical device that is what ch children choose to see during times of trauma right. or crisis. Um, I lived that. Did you, do you have any experiences like that? Uh, when you say you lived that, what do you mean? Um, what, well, we, it's something that happens chronically anyway, I think when you happen to you, we have all these different avenues of sensory perception, right? So sure. you could be talking to me while I'm looking at something else. I could, I could be ignoring or be be utterly distracted while I'm looking at something else. If it's something that's that's there to be read or looked at, or I just happen to be looking at something while listening to 
something else. Sure. And James Agee uh, did that brilliantly in uh, A Death in the Family. Speaking of mystical subtext, that figured into my life in this just very strange, beautiful way. Um, and I, I can't even talk about it. But um, the the th uh, death in the family, there's some very grown up things going on in this household. And when there's a true tragedy in a family, there's pervasive trauma, or at least the pervasive addressing of a of a trauma it's a psychological macro environment that although the children aren't told exactly what's going on the children are aware in that innermost way uh of what's going on yeah and and in the way that is you know attenuated only by the the youth and the status of not having experienced life and lessons to the point where they're, that's what makes them old enough to know dad's going to die or such and such just did this, or this is a horrible thing or dad right. And sometimes the, 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 the line of demarcation between being that or not being that might be you're the oldest sibling, right? It could be something yeah. as simple as that as like, I have to tell one of these children and that's what I'm capable of doing. Right. Right. But I can't do, I, I can't explain this to three different levels of kids in the way that they need it. So what I can do now is tell one of them. Yeah. And, and, and we don't have any idea the sort of weight that that puts on them and the way that that shapes lives. No, we don't. We don't. And uh, we, we grow up to realize with some retrospect, sometimes with the decoding of some of these memories that we get from folks who are older, who were older at the time. And, and this is what's fun about having uh, family and siblings. You can uh, ask them to fill in the blanks. Yeah, what's you can say, on? hey, what's I remember it this way. But what the hell happened? Exactly. And that's the coolest thing because <laughs> like so many, you know, Joseph Campbell and Greek mythology and the, 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 the ongoing thread of disillusionment uh, with with the authority figures, the thing that puts the protagonist in there on the path of having to trust at some point only their own wits and tools right. to, to survive. And what happens before that, whether you're talking about the Wizard of Oz or Knight of the Hunter or any any path that the protagonist reaches a point where, wow, these people don't know what the hell they're doing. And I thought they did. Yeah. You know? um, and with Wizard of Oz, it was you know, the security of home. Guess what? It's not. You're going to get to the point in your life where you realize this is all, we're all, somebody, somebody said this the other day. Um, we're just another bozo on a bus, you know? Um, <laughs> and the, the, the thing that, um, I found out is, well, speaking of my brother again, uh, we had an uncle and my brother was the oldest in the family during our, you know, my, our dad got sick and died, you know, early in his life and earlier in ours. 
and in how, fact, how, how old were you when that happened john i was 10 and um my little my younger sister was six but my older brother was 17. Wow. Uh, 17 18 about to turn 18. and um my older sister was uh 17. 16 about to turn 17. and so i was aware of you know all these things that you know you think back on a storm. some folks have a very stable upbringing you know i'm i can remember stable times and i can remember the unstable times i didn't realize them at the time i don't think i don't think it's normal i mean i think it has to be pretty severe for people for people to know hey this is this is not this is not stable this is not normal yeah this is this is a drag and usually and sometimes you'll see that you know my older sister things things sucked at my house for this one particular year uh my mother was way off the deep end um and would get hysterical and it was quite stressful um was it was it meant i don't want to pry john but was it mental illness oh sure okay (laughs) well no i mean you could say off the deep end i mean maybe she was just in a rage for 400 days in a row because you were all terrible little children i don't know it was a it was this synergism as martin amos would say um Uh, but there was some built-in mental illness that she struggled with fortunate events you know that uh sort of ganged up on her and i was old enough to see you know that end of it in terms of what what it was doing to her quite justifiably and understandably but what it was doing to me uh, at the time, it was whoa. Was this you know this is this is tough. But it wasn't until my older sister pointed out, she came over and saw saw what it was for what it was, and her basically putting the stamp of, hey, in case you're wondering, this is fucked up. Okay, <laughs> you know this the within that that twelve step of the you know the the, the hero's journey, those twelve steps um that was she was a real ally in that way because it was and and also a mentor uh what is what is another it sounds to me like basically she showed she basically shown a load a load a light on your situation to say i don't think you realize how dire this has become yeah but that essentially what she did it, no, because it wasn't from a, hey, buddy, get a clue type of thing. All it was was, how how bad is it around here? And I remember breaking down and just saying, it's bad, okay. you know, and and that was it. And and I felt sympathy and consolation. Um, and it wasn't always like that. This is this is like a just a, a period of time, about two years. It was a stormy time in a family. But you can look back on all those chapters. You get old enough to, for instance, I didn't really mourn my father's death properly, properly slash thoroughly, um, if there is such a thing uh, as thorough when it comes to mourning. But the um, the thing that snuck up on me early on after getting sober was appreciating my father's death on his terms okay i had never i hadn't done that it was something that happened it happened to 
it didn't happen to us. I mean, I was always aware of, you know, I have this song called, it must've been a drag. It must've been a real drag for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I suffered all this pain, but you're the one who actually left. And, and maybe I didn't suffer that much pain, right. you know, right. that, that, that informed what it was that he had to contend with spiritually, mentally, and emotionally as he was dying was what's the shit my kids are going to go through because I'm not there, you know? Right. Right. Um, and you know, that, that I've experienced, um, in a, in a real sense, um, in terms of just being present or not present, uh, and whether or not, uh, you, oh, can you hear the? I can. Can you hear? Yeah. It's a bless their heart, man. They come down in the freight elevator, and the door that's right there is the door that I don't use, but in front of it, I have a little sign that says Shh, "Recording in progress," just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so you can hear, you can hear back there the freight elevator coming, and something. Somebody's got a cart full of stuff, and they're caroming down the hallway and then i hear it i get there and then it's like <laughs> it's like dude it's <laughs> it's a uh, car it's funny it's okay man you're gonna make uh, no wow but anyway. um but the, so that that whole um retrospective <clears throat> resource that we have with with older folks in our in our family to sort of you know get a clue as to what was really going down and how it was going down. My brother's got, got a tale to tell. He was the oldest at the time. And we have an uncle, uh, who, uh, sort of malhandled how he was, he was put in a position of hey, <clears throat> excuse me. He was, a, he was put in a position of hey, dude, uh, your mom doesn't know this. I'm just telling you, but your dad's dying. <laughs> so, and your brother was like 17 when this went down. Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, and he set the whole thing up that way as well. I didn't talk out of school, wow. but it, um, that is it, a lot to carry around. Well, and I'm sure that my uncle thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, from he where, thought he was he thought he was making it easier on your mom. He's gonna be the strong one. Yeah, he was gonna be the strong one and and he can handle this. Uh sometimes maybe it's all in the presentation, right? Sure. It's like, hey, uh maybe you're not the strongest one around here. Maybe I'm making a mistake here, but uh, uh <laughs> Well and you know here's what's happening. And then there's that whole <laughs> okay. idea of like, you know, you know. Kids are resilient. Well, yeah, they're resilient, but then that's why we all have trauma at 40, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, and well, and trauma, you know, is there's varying degrees of trauma. Trauma, we think, of, we think of this blunt forcedness of the, the definition of trauma, you know, and something yeah. that, oh, trauma, it means you are near death. No, there's all kinds of trauma. You stub your toe walking across the... <laughs> Uh, it'll remind you not to walk that close to the coffee table next time. Yes, yes. Or Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld said, that, that feeling is a lot of knowledge rushing in at once. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a minute ago about the here and now, and this is a thing I've been working on a lot. This whole idea of like, 
not necessarily shutting everything else out, but like just trying to really take an extra moment to just enjoy what's happening pretty yeah. regularly. How are you with that? I'm uh, getting better. Okay. At it. How does that um, look? What does that look like for Jenna Carroll? Um, my challenge has been for a while and, and still is, um, the ability to issue the the feeling when doing something that's important to me this is the meditative zen aspect of it um which is to shoo away maybe that's where the word came from issue to shoo away the feeling that i'm neglecting something else in other words and i don't want but basically you're taking time to work on your thing but there's probably something right but there may be something more important that you're supposed to be doing for someone else you took it the next logical step which um i don't know how you knew this i was thinking about it last night um i have a um, i try i don't say i too much but i can only just relate that's what I was going to say. That's all you got right now. That's all I got. Um, the, uh, the switch that I try and throw sometimes when I'm working on something that maybe like before we signed on with each other, <clears throat> I discovered two sessions ago here that I have two versions of the same song. I had obviously re reapproached the song and, um, I think some tracks are in common with the two of them. <laughs> so I yes. have to figure out how to forensically figure out how to, you know, discern what's already there and what's new and what's keepable and what is, you know, and try not to have to convince myself that it's reconceptualizing the song yet again, because it's pretty much a straight ahead type of tune. And I was thinking, if this were for someone else, if I were working on this for someone else, I would pull my hair out and figure this thing out by 3 a.m. And if it's not for someone else, it's me, which I know is kind of the most important thing creatively in an artistic way for me. Um, I need to ride the logic train to discern for myself, am I rationalizing putting this to bed now because I'll need to be fresh in the morning to get to it? Or do I just stick it out and do it, you know, until 3 a.m.? Especially it. when it's work that sucks, that's for it, you. It, the work of it, the, the, the work of it. The, right, the it's not, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do vocal overdubs for an hour which if you like doing vocal overdubs can be super fun right like i right. can i'm gonna i'm gonna play with harmony parts all afternoon like that's a blast it's right a blast. yeah but like at a certain point you're like this isn't fun anymore i got i got i, I have to manage this stuff i gotta i gotta keep going and now i gotta make sense of it yeah and like uh there's a there's a pat oswald joke where he talks about how uh all the all the great filmmakers everybody thinks of are dudes but all the great filmmakers that are dudes all had women who were editors. 
So the dudes go out and shoot just loads of film. And then the women are like, all right, let's turn this thing into a baby. Come on back. Let's, you know. And, uh, and so I'm really good at the, like, let's throw a whole bunch of ideas out. And then like, I have to sit down and that is the work part, but it's incredibly important. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you can get spoiled and some folks are spoiled. Well, some folks make enough money. They hire other people to do that stuff. They don't want to do. Exactly. I I have some touchstones though, that I go to and the, the two, two of the best ones in terms of it being positive encouragement, positive session where I, the emulatable um, would be uh, Prince who is famous for just burning through engineers. He had, he, he, <laughs> he just, people who worked for Prince were drugged through a knot hole backwards by Prince. I know so many, I've heard so many tales all from different people. They're different scenarios different incidences same prince i was gonna say they all they all end the same way sooner or later you you go it's real consistent the the ending is always the same it's i just can't do this like this anymore that's what one of the guys says says oh prince is every it's everybody's next x gig it's everybody's next x gig is what they, they call it and um so they're all real consistent but man the dude stayed at it up to his neck yeah uh for years until he fucking died and it was uh, you know 44 so um but what he left behind all right you gotta hand it to the guy um you talk about you know dylan will say hey talk about me plenty when i'm gone great well he's gone and he's left all this stuff you know and that's that's the thing i think as we get older we start thinking in those terms i start thinking in those terms it's like okay well you start to think about like it's so anyway that's it's it's one of the yeah oh sorry go ahead that's one of the things go ahead i'm sorry to to be boorishly um intrepid you're not boorish at all i'm just following your things and just just rolling along so go okay number two number two alice coltrane oh who have my attention um and now I'm not too familiar with Alice Coltrane's work. What I do recall that struck a chord, and I always remember it's just one of these pearls that I heard at the time, and I thought, yes, I feel that way too. And it was a excerpt from an interview that she had done, and they played it on NPR on the on her birthday or something. She she had already passed, and but uh, she, and I paraphrase, she said. Uh, I uh, consider myself an artist. Of course, I want people to appreciate what I do. I mean, it's nice to sell records. It's nice to have money to make records, but that's not why I do it. I'm in love with the process. And that to me was such a pure thing. And living here, it it brings it around full circle. There, There are a lot of painters, visual artists, uh, crafty artists, uh, artist artists, and they're churning all the time. And all I can see is, man, you're churning. I want to be churning just as hard as you. And, um, going on the road with someone else's show, which you do fairly regularly and are going to do again this summer, right? I agreed to do, uh, a very finite two trips with, uh, with Mary Chapin carpenter this summer and I'm very happy about that um 
I, I declined a tour. It was time for all these reasons to not do that anymore for me. Um, before COVID, right before COVID. And then I, for very positively and nicely, I was cajoled back to do the tour that didn't happen. Okay. Because of COVID. So that was kind of kanky and, you know, un anticlimactic if it were ever meant to be but, right of course um, unceremonious i should say uh is the proper way of putting it and that's what i'll be able to do uh this summer if whether it's ceremonious or not um three two and a half weeks in june and three weeks in august that ends <laughs> at wolf trap in in dc and you know there's still a little bit of, i'm not going to be able to do what i do yeah there's i <laughs> mean that while I'm doing that, I can't do this. You know, that, so right. it's just something that everybody contends with, you know, and I, I can't be a dick about that. You know, when there's folks that get up at seven every morning and go to the same place and work every day and all the while they've just wanted to play the violin or something, you know what I mean? Right. Or they, they want to, uh, they want to write, they want to write for a, you know, local paper or, exactly yeah, you know they want to have a they want to have a blog about uh you know uh planting a garden or whatever and they everyone should do that and that's one of the things about like the sort of the open space for creators that's been really wonderful right people can yes. find a voice and they can go hey i'm pretty good at this thing you know right. yeah um yeah. good time I, age for polymaths <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh a dude such as myself with a, a bunch of uh, sort of surface level interest and a little bit of talent and a lot of ADHD can thrive in a moment like this, John Carroll. Or I can drown. Breaker Morant. Is that, yeah. is that what you're oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. Do you know that film? Yeah. I haven't seen it since. Yeah, I'd like to see it with a... Uh, that is... Um, <laughs> when, when pressed by people, I answer that that is my favorite film of all time. Ah, cool. I saw that film uh, first as a an eight year old, uh, and fell asleep a half an hour in with my parents. They went to go see it on a whim when we were on a family trip to Washington D.C., and it All later right. it later became kind of a family heirloom. Do you and, remember what the theater was? I don't. I don't. I remember that that weekend. Um, Probably the biograph. We, we went to D.C. for uh, like five days over spring break one year. Um, and we went to three movies when we were there. We saw Clash of the Titans, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Breaker Moran. Cool. Yeah. Man, there was one night, Margot, my wife at the time, mother of, my, of our son, uh, and I were going to see this movie at uh, Cineplex somewhere downtown. And while I'm standing in line, I see a, the poster for a movie in an adjacent theater called uh, Round Midnight. Bert, Bertrand Tavernier is in its, and I wanted to see it. It's kind of a, you know, Dexter Gordon plays yeah. kind of a, a combination of, of two guys. And uh, Coltrane and Lester Young sort of rolled into one, I do believe. And, um, but it's a beautiful, well, anyway, <clears throat> I see it and I went, oh, that's it. and Margot says, well, you should go see that. 
<laughs> I said, no, 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 no. I want to because I think the whole evening started. She said she wanted to see this movie. And I said, oh, OK. She goes, you want to go? And I said, yeah. Well, who's in it? She says, uh, Richard Chamberlain, but you probably won't like it. And I said, no, I love Richard Chamberlain. He's a great actor. I'll, I'll see it. And uh, she said, oh, you know, and I mentioned, you know, I see, I noticed the poster and she says, yeah, you should go see that. I said, I'll be fine. I'll see them. I said, no, no, no. I said, I'd come to the movies with you. I'll see the movie. <laughs> and we sit in the next to the, I think in the back row and the movie comes on and it's, uh, oh shit, I, for, I forget the title of it, but it's da 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 and the, is it the Alan Monica. Quartermain in the Lost City of Gold? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that at the theater too. That is a that is definitely a poor man's Raider of the Lost Ark for oh sure. Oh my god, it was a total knockoff, right? And it yeah. was although it is based, I think, on an Earl Stanley Gardner novel, who's the same guy that wrote uh, Tarzan. Wow. Okay. I think I have that right. I think it's the same dude. Yeah. What's his name again? Uh, Earl Stanley Gardner. I'll have to look it up now, but it's oh, definitely good. somebody who wrote other adventure stories like that. But I'm pretty sure it was him. All right. So th there's more to it than just a straight up knockoff. <clears throat> Which uh, things that the, the you know the movie of the road i just kind of thought how cynical they're only doing this because it sold a bunch of copies and they know they're right. gonna make this they much know money. that it's gonna sell tickets it's gonna you know that's all because there's no way that you can take all this internal dialogue unless it's stanley kubrick there's no way you can take all this internal dialogue and, and turn it into action right as far as what this you know because the book was all about ritual and everything so it's, i'm happy to see that there's more going on with the alan quartermain thing. i don't think no no no. I'm, i don't think there is i think it was basically like a boys like serialized magazine story but at least it wasn't at least it existed prior to indiana jones gotcha so it's 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 starting up then i see it and it's like wow and finally he shows up in the first scene and he's like wearing a hat <laughs> it's not a whip but it's uh yeah belay or something you know whatever and uh and i kind of turned to margo and said oh so this is she goes please go see the other movie <laughs> and did you i said you know uh okay i, I, I think i will You'll be fine. Yeah, because yeah. she wanted to see this thing. If she had, she had, it was on her plate, man. She would have gone by herself. And I guess I, I forced myself into the, the date, yeah. I guess. And I stepped over the back of the chair. We were in the last row and scooted over and, and caught what is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, oh, about that's 10 awesome. minutes. And yeah, it's such, that's such a great, speaking of just taking a breath and letting the pace the pace of something envelop you and you know downshift downshift with the with the director and just go on this slow motion lyrical wondrous ride you know and and that's one of those movies that does another movie that does one of those as long as we're talking about it or are we talking about it we're talking about it um Schultze gets the blues. Not familiar. It's, um, <clears throat> I think it might be a foreign director or um, non-American director. Maybe not. It's uh, the story of some salt miners in Poland who take early retirement at the behest of the company. They take early retirement. Schultze is a very rotund and 
taciturn miner, lives by himself, loves to cook, and he plays polka on an accordion. And one night, he hears on a cooking show out of Louisiana, has Zydeco music as the theme song. And he recognizes it as being an accordion, and he's, he wants to learn how to play Zydeco. <clears throat> and he does learn enough to, for the first time in the talent show that they have in this little miner's village, play attempt to play a Zydeco tune instead of a polka tune, which he does better than anyone and wins the prize every year. There's this interloping um, life gal who's that's the same character model as I was mentioning before, kind of someone who comes in and calls it what it is for everybody else who's already there. Down and Out in Beverly Hills is a great, you know, or What About Bob is another movie, which is like, this is adverse in every way for these people, but he's showing them, them themselves. He's showing oh, them. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I understand right. completely. Yeah. And she's this very passionate in uh, Schultz Against the Blues, this passionate Spanish gal or Greek gal who notices that they're sitting in the room playing checkers and there's a jukebox that's unplugged. She goes, what is that jukebox doing unplugged? You know, uh, I don't know. They just don't, they forgot. <laughs> They're in such a rut. They forgot. She plugs it in and starts playing these records and starts dancing on tables and shit. And she is at the talent show and Schultz gets up there and he's been adventurous. He has wanted to learn this thing that's new to him and he plays it poorly and no one knows what it is anyway. And they kind of sit and dumbfounded after he finishes because they don't know what the hell it is. Some, it's, <laughs> they're used to hearing. Right. They just know it's not good and it's not what they're used to. They, it's, it's nothing they're familiar with and they don't know what to think. And they just kind of sit there and this gal stands up and just starts the applause. And they, because they all really like this guy, they love, they love him because he's a lovable soul. They don't really know him because he doesn't say much, but they love what, what he's all about. So they, okay, yeah, Schultze. She takes up somehow the prize for the thing. She takes up a collection to send Schultze to Louisiana to go on a trip to Louisiana where this music and these people are. That's the story. <laughs> That's amazing. I just looked this up. This movie's this movie's from twenty years ago, John. I've never heard of this before. It's it's drawing a tear. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out right now. Uh, well, not right it's now, beautiful. but it's beautiful. Just to it's at a, this pace, you know. Like people say, there's certain baseball players they got a good game clock. Yes. You know, and the director had a great game clock for this this movie. It just kind of sits uh, there. And, and I love the I love the. Um, I love the kind of sort of slow look at a community through the lens of like a specific uh, hobby or world or group. Like there's this lovely uh, little British show that was on a few years ago called the detectorists. Mm. 
and um, I think it's three seasons, and it's this very sweet show about people who are all in this metal detecting club in rural England. And it is funny and charming and cute and sweet. And it's about a world full of nerds that are utterly adorable. Yeah. But I don't know anything about them. And to get to see them in this world and understand what makes them tick and then see how that relates to your life. Like, to me, that's the essence of like why art matters. It it, it yeah. entertains us. But then at the same time, it says, hey, you kind of live like this. Right. If you look at this objectively, you can kind of see your own choices. And like, yeah, they're not all... They're not all heroic, are they? Right. And that's the upside of wanting to analyze things, I suppose, you know, wanting to know why something touches you. It's like, okay, because. Understanding why am I connecting with that Van Morrison song in the grocery store? Yeah. Why do I not? Why do I not hear this? But I know that it's making a profound connection with me. That that was imponderable. Right. But here's the thing. It's not imponderable, John. The, you the can ponder that, it all day. You can't come <laughs> up, you can't come up with an answer. And that's, that's a, an, yeah. and that's another thing I've been really kind of focusing on as I've had these conversations. Like, I think I certainly did this, but like, I'm in this movie club with my family, right? It's my mom, my brother-in-law, my sister, and my aunt. And Beautiful. we pick up, we pick a movie. We talk every two weeks. We get together on zoom for an hour. That's wonderful. What, what I find fascinating is, that in doing this, we are all slowly having a conversation about why are we moved by what we're moved by mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. ever coming out and saying that. Right. But if we all spend a little more time being deliberate, looking at art that way and the way right. that we engage with it and why it take your favorite thing and just ask yourself five times why. And when you peel away a layer, go, okay, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. So okay, we watch this every year at Christmas. Okay, well that's easy. So let's pull that one away. That's not the. There are lots of movies you watched a million times you don't care anything about. Mm-hmm. You know, so like start to dive through. And I think if we just did that with a handful of things, we'd start to sort of see the Schultzy in ourselves and how mm-hmm. we're kind of building this life and sort of informing who we are based on the art that we take in and the things we share with other people. Mm-hmm. That l- let it resonate. You know, or not, it, to not be afraid of that, that to not be afraid of that resonance. Not be afraid. Yeah. Um, not the, be afraid of saying, I think this is worth me showing it to you. Exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's so funny, especially with, with art. And that's, it's so great that you do that with your family. I love that. The, um, there are so many different, uh, pr- approaches that folks, and this is the, the thing that's daunting and um, uh, saddening uh, to me, because uh, I think people know better. But legislators and on the right, can I just point out that the fascist right, one of the things that makes it fascist, uh, uh, a characteristic of fascism, they have no grace and they have no art. They, they have, have no curiosity. Lyricism. They had uh, all those people lined up with their Messiah, who's one of the most artless guys ever to be presented to the rest of the world, to storm. They were going to, they stormed the Capitol. They knew they were storming the Capitol. Not one of those motherfuckers had 
even a drum to beat, much less a song to sing, much less a chant this side of hang Mike Pence. That yeah, was absolutely the, right. I'd never thought about that, John. That's, that's very, the very of their great, you know, and what the rest of us, which is the vast majority of us, correct, whether we want to admit it or not, um, that do have lyrical souls, that do have sensitivities that lead us toward grace, that lead us toward the gratification of service that leads well us it's to funny i was just having a conversation uh, yesterday with we, jared with jared yates we have songs to sing we have songs to sing we spent a good long time writing them go ahead yeah no, no no and he asked me he was like he said he's like one of the things i feel really disappointed by is like i saw a lot of great activism the one thing i didn't see was i didn't hear where was the clash for trump yeah you know where was the where was the jam for where Trump, was where was the where, where was, was the where was Pete Seeger? Where was that, James Baldwin? We where don't was, have we don't have an Ohio for January sixth. No. Yeah, they and don't. So, Ohio. They don't. They, they've Ohio. never had Ohio. They have Kevin Sorbo and they want to you know, guys. And this is fine because this is all about fighting back. And I do believe that this is important that we do fight back well but without, i think i think without, the point without worrying about it being demeaning to our character or, or betraying gandhi or something the reason that people do get in the streets is that they're led to believe or they find themselves in a very believable situation where there's no other place to be but in the street right you have to do that or you're doing nothing they've built themselves to a point where those are the only two options or you've had your economy stripped away, your rights Correct. stripped away to the point where you have nothing left yes. but to yes. go. Yes, yes. So, your back is truly against the wall. And, you know, these guys have been cultivated. And, and would you say they've been, would you say they've been groomed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no one is more groomed than, than no. those guys. But no I one... do think part of what's being groomed out of them is sort of that sense of wonder and magic and curiosity that we've been talking about, because it requires a bravery and a courage that is not, that isn't nurtured in people enough. And certainly not in that, in that world, in that society. That is a, you know, I mean, if we, if we look at sort of the people who are most ardent about things like the Second Amendment or are big believers in, you know, what happened on January 6th and think that that wasn't a bad thing. These are people who sort of have these calcified opinions and their whole idea is sort of hoarding whatever they have. It's not about growing anything. It's about no. keeping what exists, which inevitably right. is going to get stale. And so my <laughs> point is, I'd like, I'd rather be part so of a world that is building something as opposed to just trying to warehouse it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's interesting when you look at anthropology, the maybe i'm wrong maybe it's just me but i always f found the iconic emblematic aspect of hunter gatherers as being you know hunters they're they were the most barbaric they they went out and killed stuff and they probably hunted each other no it was the planters <laughs> the planters that had they were the first people to hoard stuff yeah um and yeah it's interesting it's interesting and, and i think it's it's also funny too how the more you see people who go out in the world 
and they do stuff with other people, the less that becomes their default setting, that idea of hoarding and security and privacy in mine. Yes. And that's I been go out in the, I go out in the world and I, and I do a thing and I see that people are less scary than I've built them up to be. And they're more open than I imagined. And they're more beautiful. And they're, and I feel better than I thought I'd feel. I'm John, how many of us on a regular basis think to ourselves, wow, I had a really good day just by going out and running errands in my town and talking to my neighbors. Yes, yeah. And most of us before we did that went, oh shit, I gotta go do these five things now. <laughs> and you get done at the end of the day and you're like, God damn, I had three really good conversations. You know, and you met people and you talked to people. I had this lovely experience that I've talked about before, the week before Christmas where I bought all of my stocking stuffers for my family up and down two streets in Lansing. And I had a lovely conversation in every one of those places. And it was, yes. it was beautiful. Spiritually awakened way. It's exactly. And so, you know, you can go and you can go through the drudgery at the mall and maybe have that experience where you have that emotional awakening. Or you could just go, you know what, today I'm going to go to the local peanut shop and I'm going to go buy some stuff from the lady who sells handmade soaps and then I'm going to go home and I'm just going to spend 20 bucks out and about. And like you did a really fundamentally beautiful thing just by changing 20 minutes of the way you spent your day. Yeah, exactly. You it's touched that people. sort of deliberation that we're talking you about. You touched people. And after I had this spiritual awakening in the mall, I hung up the phone for my brother and I went out and I, and I touched some children. I ended up in jail that night, but <laughs> it was worth it. Dance like no one's watching. Touch somebody else's kids. I think that bumper sticker is on a car in the neighborhood. That's exactly right. And I didn't need to dress up like a woman or anything. No, you were just dressed as Jesus Christ. I was dressed as Jesus and I touched some, touched some kids. John, this was amazing. I don't know. There's no way to wrap this up. Like we, we're just going to have to do this like 12 times as schedules allow. But this was, uh, this was Anytime, amazing. Right? This was amazing, my friend. Thank you so much so much it's a million for doing what you're doing and and best of luck with with all of it and you know you're you're doing good stuff looking for truth and and talking about it thanks and, man i uh I'm, I'm hope i'm finding some some of it you certainly got to some today i appreciate it how about that huh what a man what a guy what a legend, John Carroll. Thank you so much, my friend. It was a real treat to talk to you. I hope it's not the last time we do that and record it. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time that you and I have a lengthy and wonderfully enriching conversation. Thanks again for all of you and uh, your support, for listening, for being here, for sharing, for subscribing, for paying, for all of the things that you do. Remember, we've got the new goal by May 1st, 500 free subscribers. That's basically 150 more than we have right now. And 50 paid subscribers, that means we got to find 30 paid subscribers in the next 30 days. If that could be you, that'd be great. Thanks again for being here. I'll have another great episode for you next week. Pay attention to some cool stuff coming this week on the Substack. And I'll see you next time. Until then, cheers. Cheers.